So Father, I pray, pray that you would bless all that is given and all the givers who give that we might know your great grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn please to 1 John in chapter 2. John's first epistle in chapter 2, please. I want to read verses 12 through 14. If you're looking in your biblical text, you'll find that they're written a little bit differently than the rest of the text, just indented a bit and written more like a poetic passage. Uh, they're written, this passage is written in your bulletins as well. And as always, as we come to the scripture, we think that uh, we need to pray to give God thanks for his word and that he would help us as we think through it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this word is alive, you say. And it's sharp, and so we pray that it would live within us, that it would abide in us. That it is not like any other, any other word, any other thing written. But yet this lives in us, abides in us, even as Jesus our Lord by His Spirit lives and abides in us, to strengthen us, to enable us to know You and to walk with You. Please, I pray that it would have that purpose met in us this morning as we hear it, as we think about it. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12, this is the word of the Lord. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. Now I mentioned before we read that this is, is, is written down, and it's just the actual printing of it in our biblical text, a bit differently than, than, than the rest of this letter. And it, uh, it's to show that it's somehow different, that, that John is, is interrupting himself, if you will. This is a bit of a tangent for him. And, and he's laying out something almost in, in poetic verse. We can we, we kind of see it as he addresses various ones within the congregation, children and, and, and young men and fathers, and, and the repetition of it. And we know that in the scripture, as we find things repeated, that it often... It's repeated to bring emphasis to it. Uh, John didn't have a, a particular function in his computer that allowed him to simply write something and then bold it or put it in italics. But the way that it was put in bold, if you will, was to repeat again and again. And so we see this, this repetition. And it's easy, in a sense, for us to remember because it comes to us in this kind of verse. Now, one of the questions that I, I ask always when I come to a passage, is why is the biblical author saying this right here, right now? In other words, why does he plug this in here? Why didn't he begin with it? Why didn't he end with it? Why didn't he just leave it out altogether? Well, it must have a purpose for putting it right where it is. Because we know that this word isn't just John's word. 
we know that this word is God's word. That is to say that everything in the Bible is, how does the scripture itself put it? It's God-breathed. In some translations, have it inspired by God, but literally it's expired. It's breathed out from God through these biblical authors. And so we know that when we're reading this passage, we've heard God speak. If you ever ask the question, or ever wonder, has God ever spoken to me? The answer is, have you ever read your Bible? Because that's where He speaks to us. Speaks to us through this Word and in it. And of course, we speak to Him as we pray. And, and so this is the, 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 the relationship that we have with Him. But this is His Word, and so we're asking, not simply John, why is this here? But even more significantly, we're asking God, why is this here right now? And, and, and while John doesn't give us explicitly that, I'll simply pass along to you what I've, what I've heard and read from others who know the Lord and know the Scripture, and with whom uh, I agree it makes great sense to say, John's writing this here and now because he's a pastor. Because he wants to encourage them and comfort them. Because he said to them in the preceding chapter and paragraphs, some very difficult things. If you had to boil it down, you could easily boil it down to what John, uh, what John has said, something like this. That God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we're liars. And the truth isn't in us. If we say we haven't sinned, we've deceived ourselves. If we say we have no sin at all, and we haven't sinned at all, then we're calling God a liar. Oh, well, that's that's hard to hear. And then he says in, 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 in chapter 2 and verse 4, Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. Now, I don't know, you, you listen to all that and you think, well, am I in darkness? I mean, I, I know, I sin. But what does that mean about my life? I, I know I'm to obey him, but I don't. What does that mean? About, about my life. And then later he says that we're to love as Jesus has loved. And if we don't, then we're in darkness. And we're blinded. And we can't see where we're going. And, and, and you might think, well, I don't love like Jesus loved. <laughs> Who's that saying about me? And so John just kicks back, takes a pause. And it says, all right, now, I, I want to tell you now why I'm writing to you. Why I'm writing these particular things to you. Why I've said what I've said. Because I, I need to pause for a minute because I'm going to say things that if that has ruffled your feathers, what I'm about to say is going to blow them off completely. Because it isn't going to get easier as we get through and as we move through this epistle, this letter. So he pauses right here as a pastor to comfort and encourage them. You see, what's happened in the churches to whom John writes is that those who have left, he calls them antichrists because they've put out a gospel that isn't Christ's gospel. They've put out a gospel that isn't true. And so they've left, and now John has this, these congregations remaining, and he writes to them, and he says, Now I want to give you assurance that you really do have eternal life, that you really do have fellowship with the Father, that you really do belong to Him, that you really do know Him, that given that evangelistic question that we've asked over the years, if you died tonight, 
um, would the Father receive you into his heaven? And you can hear that and you can say, yes, he would. And so he says, I want to give you confidence that you really do belong to him. That's why I'm writing these things to you. You'll notice that, that he's real honest and explicit. He says, I'm writing to you, children, little children, because. This is why I'm writing to you. And I'm writing to you, young men, because. This is why I'm writing to you. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because. That is, this is why I'm writing to you. And he's writing to them because he knows who they are. More importantly, he's writing to them because he knows whose they are. And he's saying to them, I'm writing these things to you, not because I don't think you're a Christian, but I'm writing these things because I know that you are. And I want to encourage you to know them and to live them out. Have you ever had someone in your life who saw something in you that you couldn't see? and pointed it out to you and encouraged you in it and it changed everything. It might have been maybe one of your parents or both. It may have been a sibling. It may be a, a spouse. It may be a friend. It may be a mentor. Maybe a coach. Maybe a teacher. Maybe a professor. Someone, they've encouraged you in something and you go, oh, I never saw that in me. It's hard for me to believe it's in me. But then they point it out and they say, it's really true about you. And it, and it changed everything in your life. I was speaking with a young woman this week told me about a coach in her life. He just passed away, but a coach in her life that meant everything, changed everything in her life because he saw something in her that she couldn't see. Now, now John says, I know something about you, church. I see something in you that perhaps after what I just said, you're doubting. I don't want you to doubt it. It's really true. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing you because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing you because you've known him who is from the beginning. Don't doubt that. Now, if you'll allow me, I need to take care of just some, some business with this text, some technical things. Um, the end result, you'll agree with me that they're not all that important but you may be wondering about them. Uh, one question that's often arisen about this particular section of Scripture is, is this. Is John writing to three groups or two? And you might say, well, it sounds like he's writing to three. He's got little children or children. In fact, if you really want to be technical, John uses two different Greek words for the word children. But that shouldn't uh, upset us at all because if you read John, you'll know he's a master at synonyms. He just likes them. There's unlikely to be any difference between those two particular words. But he writes to children, he writes to young men, and he writes to fathers. Say, well, there's three groups. The problem is that John, throughout this epistle, and also in 2 John and also in 3 John, most often uses the expression children for everybody. I mean, he's an old guy. He looks at this church. He's kind of raised them up. He has this sort of paternalistic feel for them, fatherly kind of vibe going on. That was really cool, wasn't that vibe? I used the word vibe. Vibe going on. And um, and so uh, he calls them children. It's, it, it sounds condescending. It would be condescending probably if I said but, but he doesn't mean it that way. He's just saying, listen, I love you. And I've been with you. And, and, and that's what he means by 
by children. So he includes everybody in that. You'll notice in chapter 2, in verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Includes everyone. I could go through a number of other texts, but, but that's what clouds it up a bit. And it clouds it up a bit, but he doesn't take it the way we would expect him to. We would expect him to start out with children and then go to young men and then the fathers, but he doesn't. He goes children and then fathers and then young men. And what's up with that? Well, I think all this can be solved, and many do, by simply saying a couple of things. Number one, that what John says about children should be true of, uh, true of us all. What should be true about the young men should be true of us all. And what should be true of fathers should be true of us all as well as in us. But also we recognize that throughout the course of our Christian life, there are ages and stages there are, there are ways that God deals with us, perhaps at particular times, given circumstances perhaps, given how long we've walked with Him, things He's teaching and training us in the midst of this, that sometimes we likely to be children, sometimes young, sometimes old, sometimes children, sometimes in the midst of the fight, sometimes looking back young men and, and fathers, not young women and mothers. Well, we don't know, other than to say that in John's day, uh, these uh, masculine names, pronouns were used for everybody. So we should take it, I suppose, like that. So let's look at these as things which are true of all of us, but maybe especially true at particular times in our Christian our Christian life. Children, he begins. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then in verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. Now as he writes to these uh, uh, children, um, he wants very much to know that their sins are forgiven. He says that's true for all of us. Most particularly, if you're young in the faith, you need to get that. You need to know that. You need to know that your sins are forgiven. But remember he says this for the sake of his name. That's why your sins are forgiven. Not for the sake of your name, but for the sake of Christ's name. That is, your sins are forgiven because of Christ, not because of, not because of you. Don't look to yourself, but look to Christ, you see. I mean, he's our advocate, he says in the opening verses of chapter 2. He stands for us before the Father, meaning that when the Father sees Christ, he sees us in him. We're united to him so that everything that he gained by his life and death is now ours. We're united to him. He's the propitiation for our sins. I hope that you've allowed that word to live in your life, that word propitiation. Uh, he's the one who paid the price. He's the one who satisfied the wrath of God. We talk about the image of, of the wrath of God in the Old Testament as we did a few weeks ago. Then we realize that it's, it's often called a cup, a cup of wrath. Jesus drank it all. There's not a drop left there in it, which means that there is no case in heaven against us. It's all been taken. It's all been satisfied. Now you say, well, why do I need to hear this again? 
why, why isn't it just for the young ones? Well, why does John think we're all children at this extent? We all need to hear this. And, and the answer is because in our lives, this salvation, a free grace of sins forgiven on the basis of another, sounds too good to be true. And I know that because every time I preached this, it happened, it happened again when I preached chapter 2 of Christ being our propitiation. I get more notes from you than any other topic upon which I preach. When I preach about sins forgiven, what we know is basic in our Christian life, I get more notes. And, and the reason is, because when I talk about sins forgiven to Christians, I know all at once you're thinking about that sin. I know that you're thinking about that sin. And there's something in you that says, I should pay for that sin. Okay, you can have all the others, but I should pay for this one. At least some of it. It was really bad. And then you hear, no, 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 no. Christ has covered everyone. May I say it this way? Particularly that one. And if you say that's hard for me to believe, I have to say that you have another sin to confess. It's your sin of pride. To think that you could sin in such a way that the blood of Christ couldn't cover it. That you're that good a sinner. <laughs> He's that good a savior. He can take your biggest hit. Can I once again tell you my favorite forgiveness story? I think I've shared this five times in 30 years. So that's only once every six years on average. So I'll keep it for another five. But I remember first hearing this story. And to be honest with you, I actually doubt that it's true. But it makes the point. The story goes like this. It's a little boy in South America. Ten years old. He comes to his mom and he says, Mom, I was praying and I had a visitation from Jesus. It's very serious. So his mom takes it seriously. But she scratches her head a bit. So she goes in that country to the local priest and she says, My son says he's received a visitation from Jesus. Could you help me to determine whether that's true or not? So the priest says, sure, I'll come and see him. So he does. He goes to see the little boy. They chat a bit. Finally, the priest brings up the situation and says, your mom says you had a visitation from Jesus that he showed up. And the boy said, yes. They chat a bit about the conversation the boy had with Jesus. And finally, the priest says, well, could you do me a favor? And the little boy says, sure. What is it? And the priest says, well, the next time Jesus comes to visit you, will you ask him? But I confessed in my last confession. Because the priest knew that he was the only one who knew that. The little boy said, sure. The priest goes away. Sometime later, the little boy comes to his mom and says, hey, he came again. I saw Jesus. She went and got the priest. The priest came. The priest sits down with the little boy and they chat. After a while, he says, do you remember what I asked you to ask Jesus? The little boy said, yes. I said, did you ask him? He said, yes. I asked him what? And the priest said, what did Jesus say? And the little boy said, well, 
Jesus said he couldn't remember. That's interesting. You know the big one? The big one you've confessed maybe over and over again. After the first time, he kept saying, what in the world is he talking about? What's, what's he talking about? You see, he takes their sins and he throws them as far as the east is from the west. Contemplate that. He puts them in the sea, the bottomless pit, the sea of forgetfulness. Contemplate that. When you say it sounds too good to be true, you're only half right. It does sound really good, doesn't it? It is true. It is true. Believe it, you see. Believe it. So he says to the church, I'm writing you because you know this. I'm not writing to you so that you can be good enough to earn it. I'm writing you because it's already true. And so I can tell you these things. I can tell you how to live. I can tell you what to believe. Because I know you will. Because your sins have been forgiven. You see, there's a danger in us even still for us to think that we're forgiven on the basis of our repentance, the sincerity of our repentance. But you know, we can never repent good enough. We can never confess good enough. That was the problem with our dear brother Martin Luther. He would lay on the floor for hours upon hours and confess his sins. And those above him would come to him and say, Martin, why do you keep confessing your sins like this? And he said, well, there's so many, and I'm not sure I'm getting it right. I'm not sure I'm sincere enough. And they would say, well, you, you can't ever be sincere enough. Don't trust in your sincerity. Trust in the work of Christ, you see. That's what our old Puritan friends used to say. We need to repent of our repentance. Even our repentance isn't pure enough, you see. We're trusting, and we're trusting upon Christ. He is the one who's paid the penalty for us. And bank on this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bank on this for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then you see, you know that He is our Father. That we belong to Him. That He's received us. For we're in Christ, His Son. And thus we become too then His sons and daughters. Hmm. Now John moves on. Begins to speak to fathers and young men. I want to take the young men second, if you will. And he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Notice how strongly he puts it. You have overcome the evil one. He writes to, to young men. They're in the midst of the battle. Young men, young women. They're young in faith, but yet engaged now. Engaged in this, in this battle. And he says to them, writing you because I know something is true about you if you're in Christ and you are he says, if you're in Christ if you're a believer in Jesus then I know that this is true of you you've overcome the evil one and then he becomes a bit more explicit at the end of verse 14 he writes this he says I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one we could read that backwards in that he's, they've overcome the evil one uh, because the word of God abides in them. And because the word of God abides in them, they're strong. 
So we can say, because you're strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. You see that. He writes to these who seem to be in the midst of the fray, in the midst of the battle. You know, oftentimes we think of children, you know, and we think of children and we say, well, they can be a bit self-absorbed, children can, and, and, and we need to tend to them a, little, a bit more, more carefully. It's like the little kid who runs and, and falls, scrapes his knee, and comes running to his mom or dad, and, and at that moment in time, in the life of that kid, in the mind of that kid, the only thing that matters in all of the universe, the only thing that has mattered throughout all of history, is that he's in pain. What do you do? You pick them up and you cuddle them and you deal with it. Because they're children. A day would come when you might not. The day will come when you might say, hey, hold on to that a minute. Or, or go to the sink and wash it out. Or hey, grab a band-aid up in the upstairs bathroom and put it on. Reminds me a bit of, of the disciples of Jesus. You could say to just children, and a big storm comes up, you know, and then it comes up, and, and, they, and they think they're going to die, so they run to Jesus who's asleep in the boat, and they say, don't you care about us? And look at that, and they say, I can relate. And what does Jesus do? Well, he rebukes them a bit, but then he calms the storm. Sometimes he doesn't calm the storm for a while. Sometimes... There's some storms for a long, long, a long, long time. Paul, the apostle, had a thorn in his flesh. He said it was a messenger from Satan to buffet him. It seemed like it wasn't going to go away. The Lord wasn't going to take that away. He was in the midst of a battle, in the midst of a fray. But you see, we stand in Christ. So we can look at each other and John can look at them. And we can say, well, we've overcome the evil one. But, but you may not feel that way. You may be able to look back and see a bunch of rubbish in your past. And you go, well, yeah, I didn't seem to overcome him so well there or there or there or there. But yet we can still say that we've overcome him. Why? Because we're in Christ. And John's seeing us as, we're, as we are in Jesus. In our advocate, who's the one who stands before us. He's the one in whom all things are true of us, that are true of Him, that He won, that He bought, that He paid for, that He got for us. So yes, you've overcome the evil one. So John's saying, I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing this to you, that, that God is light and in Him there is no, dark, no darkness at all. If you say that you have fellowship with Him, and that you don't uh, 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 walk in the light, you're a liar. He says, I'm writing these things to you because you do walk in the light. And you have overcome the evil one. Because I see you in Jesus. Because you see, that's why Jesus came. In fact, in 1 John in chapter 3, in verse 8, the middle of verse 8, John writes very explicitly, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Jesus came because the devil in the Garden of Eden had destroyed the crown of God's creation. And it separated Adam and Eve and all humanity from that point on from God. And so Jesus came to rectify that, to destroy that work. And He destroyed that work in the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. And we saw the preliminary work of that, the shadow of it through the Old Testament as God provides all of these shadows, these sacrifices and the temple and all of that. But that was just a point to, to the coming of Jesus 
so that when he came and shed his blood, it would apply back to them and even forward in our lives and all who were to come after the cross to, to deal with. And we saw in the life of Jesus this, this battle, this struggle. I mean, right after he was born, you remember what happened. That Herod was so upset that this new king was coming that he killed all these little ones so that he might kill the Christ. Well, who is behind all of that, do you think? And then we see that as Jesus comes into his own in his ministry and he's anointed by his father and his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What happens? Well, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil and he goes battle with him there. And, and how does Jesus overcome? By the word of God. He uses the scripture rightly. The evil one uses the scripture wrongly. Jesus corrects him. And there's power, you see, in that scripture, in the word of God. And then we see throughout Jesus' life. This doesn't surprise you. There were so many times when the disciples of Jesus didn't have a clue who he was. But the demon possessed people. The demons always knew who Jesus was. Because they knew the struggle. They knew the battle that was taking place between Jesus and the evil ones. And you know that by the word, he was able to cast them out. And then even on that night that he was betrayed, Satan came and, and entered into Judas. And Jesus was betrayed and went to the cross. Yet even then, the evil one was defeated as we hear triumphant on Easter day as he is raised, Jesus is, from the dead. And so now John writes and says to them, In Christ, all that the devil has meant for evil God will use for good. He will redeem your lives. And I love how the Old Testament poets put it. He redeems our lives from the pit, from Satan himself, you see. And so he says, you've overcome the evil one. And, and, and now, in the course of your life, I'm, I'm going to tell you some things after this that are going maybe seem harder for you to swallow than what I've already told you. But I want you to bear in mind that in Christ you've overcome the evil one. And now I want you to hear what I tell you and I want you to do it. I want you to hear what I tell you and have confidence that God is at work in you to enable you to live this out. Do you hear that, church? But to hear what he tells us, to live it out. And what he says is that if my word lives in you, it abides in you. That's what the word abide means. It lives in you. It's powerful in you. And it's transforming you in such a way that will enable you to, to say no to the evil one, say no to temptation, and obey him in love as Christ has loved. That's how you are to live in this power, the very power of the Word of God. I mean, do you remember what, what Moses said to the people? You can find this in Deuteronomy in chapter 32. I quote it from time to time because I live from this. trifle with them. They're not to be ignored. But these words are your life. This is how you will live. This will what enable you to, to really live the life that God has called you to live. And he says to Joshua, don't let these words uh, fall out of your mouth, if you will, but keep them. Meditate on them day and night. This is where you'll find the prosperous spiritual life, the real power of God to live out to live out your life 
Paul writes that these words are God-breathed and profitable so that we can live godly lives. And Jesus put it like this. John records it in John chapter 15 and verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. There's nothing more joyful than to overcome the evil one in a moment in time. He's been overcome by Christ. We stand victorious in him. And then to experience it by the word of his power. We go, yes, his word abides in me. When I find myself, however infrequent it might be, being patient, I think, oh, thank you, Jesus. You've overcome the impatience in me. When I find myself to be forgiving, thank you, Jesus, that your word of forgiveness is finding in me its power and strength, this living word. When I find myself being compassionate, when I find myself being kind, when I find myself being loving, when I find myself being joyful in the midst of the world in which we live, I say, thank you, Lord, because that's you at work in me. And it isn't that he bypasses me, it's that he works in me these things to transform my life. That's why John can say, you've overcome the evil one. It isn't that I'm an empty shell and I just need to kind of clear my whole self of everything and somehow, boom, he goes through me. It isn't that at all. I used to have a friend in my charismatic days, put that together, uh, and um, he said, Bill, all we need is a dose of the ghost. And I said, well, yeah, but we need the Spirit of God and work in us by His Word to transform us, not to set us aside, but to transform us. So we see this, we say, is it Christ or is it me? And the answer is yes. It's Christ in me who is the hope of glory. Jesus at work in us. And you may say, I don't feel that kind of strength. But no, most likely you feel weak. But Paul said this. He says, God's power is perfected in my weakness. James, quoting the proverb, says that God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. What's he mean? He means the proud one is the one who says, I can. The humble one is the one who says, I can't. God resists the one who says, I can, and gives grace to the one who says, I can't. That's where the power comes. And thus, when the evil one feels strong in whatever way, whether it's a temptation, or whether it's another person who's difficult, or a circumstance, whatever it is, and we feel weak, we feel as if we're going to submit to this sin, and then we must remember and seek the Lord and say, help me, give me strength. Provide your word in me that enables me to overcome, you see, the evil one. And then finally, he addresses the fathers. And he says, I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, when you get the sense he's writing to fathers, you get perhaps the children, at least the old ones, in the congregation. And he says, there's something true of you. Certainly you know sin's forgiven for Christ's sake. Certainly know that you've overcome 
that because you, you know him who is from the beginning. When, when John uses that expression, he's talking about Jesus. But when he says you've known him who is from the beginning, he says, yes, you know Jesus, but you know also the Father because Jesus came to reveal the Father. And you know the Spirit because he sends him into you. So you know God. You reached a place in life, if you refer to his Father, that, that, you, really, that you really know him. You know sins forgiven. You, you've lived this out. And you have a sense of thankfulness, if you will. Because you realize that you have been forgiven for Christ's sake. You can look back in your life and you see all those times when you tried to repent enough and it didn't work. And you tried to do, be good enough and it didn't work. And you look back in all of that and, and you realize, no, it truly is. I rest in the fact that I'm forgiven for the sake of Christ. For He is my only hope. And I go back and I think of that sin. In fact, if you're old enough, you think of those sins. And you realize, I really am forgiven. Because it really is for Christ's sake. He really did it. Because here I still stand in faith. And there's a sense of settledness in these fathers, it seems. Settledness in the sense that you know this one who is from the beginning and you realize that this has been his plan from the very beginning. Now this, Paul put it as he writes to the church in Ephesus, the women of the church studying Ephesians should resonate here as we all should. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. You realize, oh my! This, is, this has been the case since, since forever. I've been in, in Him. And that settledness didn't just happen yesterday. It didn't just happen when I was 40. It didn't happen when I was 20. It didn't happen when I was... No. I've been in the Father's heart in Christ since before the foundations of the world. And I realized then that sovereign over everything, that all that has been ordained to take place in the course of my life, and even in the world around my life, has been done so that I might know Him. That whatever was meant for evil, God is always meant for good in the course of my life. And I, I can begin increasingly see that more and more in the context of, of, of my own life, would say one would be considered father. And not only that, I, as father, begin to desire increasingly the giver as opposed to the gifts. You, you know, on Christmas Day, when kids get presents, they never read the card. Because they don't really care who it's from. His grandparents, you plead with them, I got you that. Please love me. Right? And his parents, you just feel like, well, there's no care. But when you get older and you get a present, you open the card and you read it, and you don't even need to see the gift. Because what you cherish is the giver. And you say, the giver knows me. The giver loves me. That's all I need. 
That's all I need to know. You get a sense that, that, that the fathers get all of this. And, and I read this passage, this benediction from 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me read that again. This sounds like somebody who really has walked with the Lord, doesn't it? He says, here's my, my prayer for you, my hope for you. That the God of peace, this God who's made peace, I know that He's made peace because He's made peace through the blood of the cross. He's made peace through Jesus because for Christ's sake, I'm forgiven, thus restored, thus reconciled to God. And He says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. That is, make you holy. Enable you to overcome the evil one as you have in Christ and now in your life May He sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's what I hope. You get this sense that He's echoing uh, this other sentence in Scripture where Paul writes, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. He began it in you when you were just a child in the faith and you just knew your sins were forgiven and that was great and He was your Father. And then you got to know him deeply through the struggle. You got to know that through the struggle he was with you. And know that through the struggle he would enable you. And that his word was powerful. And you began to know him more deeply. And then even now, as a father, you realize, yes. The giver of the gift is God. And then the father can say to you, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If I might just take one last moment to reflect on that sentence. When I was uh, about 40 years ago or so, I was seven. I was in front of about 15 or 16 men who were elders in the church. And I'd come to the meeting that night to ask them, to bless, to endorse, mean that I could go to seminary. And one of the men there named Phil Baugh, I don't even know if he's still alive. Phil Baugh asked me the question, he said, is there anything from scripture that you take with you that do you hold on to? I said, yes. There's this passage from 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. And this sentence, he who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it. People have asked me, what's changed in your preaching over the years? And I said, I don't know. On one hand, nothing, I suppose. I, I still use the same methods. I still use the same sources. They were dead when I used them before. They're still dead, most of them same theology same message of sovereign grace I still talk too fast sometimes and I still when I get excited can talk too quietly if there's anything that's changed it's not what I've said 
I just know it better. It's really true. I believed it was true then, eh? But now, he who calls you is faithful. He'll do it. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know that you've overcome the evil one. And know that you know him. There's one who was from the beginning. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please. None of us has any power in and of ourselves for these words to come alive. So I pray that they would come alive in each of us just at the place where we're living right now. But that you won't stop there, but they'll continue to resonate and continue to work and continue to live in us. Enable us, enabling us one day to be able to look back and say, this very one who has called us is faithful and he will bring it to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. And receive this now as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy, his joy and ours to be glory in Christ Jesus and in His church now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below.